Welcome to the first ever podcast of the Birdie Bug Pod. Yeah, that's a jingle sorted straight off the bat. <laughs> so here we are. Yeah, so first ever episode. Um, hopefully you've listened to our quick little intro so you sort of know who we are and what this is about. But for today, he's looking at me because he knows we haven't recorded that yet. I'm also <laughs> looking at you because my chair is squeaking and I think that's going to... Well, well, I think that's going to come cut, up. Yeah, fine. I'll have to cut that out. Um, so today we thought we'd chat a little bit about rewilding, specifically rewilding your garden, because neither of us have the luxury of rewilding a huge chunk of land, but Dad here has actually done a little bit in his own garden. In a very small garden, but it has been brilliant. We'll, yeah, we'll talk so about that in a, in a bit later. I think it's one of those <clears> nice reassuring topics of the fact that we sometimes feel a little bit useless, and it means that even if you've got only a small garden, a little patch of land, that you can actually do some good things for nature. Don't worry about the odd sound. Um, ah, I'm just making sounds all over the place. Your chair is squeaking. A squeaky chair. I've just picked up my notes. More ASMR. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I will try and stay still. Well, at least you're making yourself lots of editing work. Um, So yeah, I thought we'd chat a little bit about how to rewild your own little garden and some of the benefits of doing so. That sounds great. Let's get on with it. Cool. So, first of all, I thought I should probably introduce what rewilding actually is. And doing a little bit of a search across Google, it's varied, but like the general idea behind rewilding is to let sort of nature take over. So whereas we of, often manage land quite heavily with pesticides and chemicals or mowing our lawns or strimming verges alongside roads, it's sort of the principle is to let it just go wild and let it go back to being full of native species. Yes, and if you've been watching Spring Watch or Autumn Watch, you'll see in Wild Ken Hill, which is in the north part of Norfolk, that's exactly, they've been on a, a piece of land that they've been doing that very thing, rewilding, and it's a, as an agricultural area, so it's farmed, it's commercial, but they have rewilded, and it's been incredible. The results within such a short space of time has been absolutely amazing. Yeah, it does seem to bounce back quite quickly. The other example is, um, I think it's the Nepa State, which is somewhere along the south coast, I think, which is another farm that's sort of rewilded. Yeah. And I think they even do, like, UK wildlife safaris. Uh, but for, like, um, for if you want lots of really detailed information about what rewilding is on a large scale, uh, Rewilding Britain is sort of the place to go. They, they're a charity involved in doing that across the country and have a lot of information on, on the background. Well, one of the reasons why it's like so important is, as a small island, we are a little bit barren in terms of our native species. We've lost 97% of our wildflower meadows. Is that much? Yeah, since the 1930s. Wow. Um, you've also got only 13% of the UK's land has sort of tree cover, which in Europe that's actually 46%. And so we're sort of lagging behind our neighbours on, on being a wild island. And so lots of people are trying to... Trying to boost so why that. do you think that is? Do you think we've just built on too much green space? Do you think we've cut down trees and is yeah. that a part of it? It's a lot of development and in general our legislation doesn't necessarily protect a lot of our wild spaces. Compared Don't get me on the subject of yeah. politicians and governments. Compared to Europe, there's, there, it's not frequently uh, a priority when it comes to development. That is starting to change and you've got lots of charities really pushing for that change. Um and, and try and improve sort of the legislation around development. But that that's definitely part of it during all of the 
industrial revolution things like that really did muller quite a lot of our land um but hopefully we can bounce back a little bit um well i think i think yes i think as i've mentioned wild ken hill which is just one example it it does show that nature bounces back really really quickly if you let it and it doesn't matter whether it's on a scale of you know a big nature reserve like that or a big uh, agricultural area like that or whether it's in a 30 foot by 30 foot garden yeah exactly so, and it's again people often think that if they've only got small garden there's not a lot they can do but i think i took it from rewilding britain's website it's estimated that all of the gardens in britain cover an area almost twice as large as all of our national nature reserves so if everybody does a little bit on their small patch of land it adds up to a, a huge uh, percentage really of our um, of our country it's a bit like alongside gardens you have your road verges and they cover 1.2 percent of, of Britain which is about the size of Dorset so again if yeah. those areas are managed more for wildlife that's a, a huge amount of land that has the potential to be brilliant for wildlife if we manage it properly so that's what we're going to chat a little bit about today and how to do that within your own garden and so I think for you it started with no mow may Yes, it did. No Mo May, which I think was a, a directive started by plantlife.org. I think it was... Plant is it plantlife? I don't know whether they were... I don't know whether it's a charity or whether it's... Um, they are a charity. Yeah. Yeah, they, they push for, for plants and fungi and things like that. They, I don't know whether it was developed or the original idea came from them, but they're definitely the biggest... Yeah, so I saw, well, I saw this thing, No Mo May, and I thought, brilliant, Let's let's give it a try. So... I do only have a small garden, but I do have lawn in it, and I literally let it go for a whole month. Um, I didn't even I didn't cut any of it. And there are you know when you do this uh, letting your garden go wild, they talk about leaving patches long and still cutting areas. But I let the whole lot go. Yeah. And then <laughs> it did get it did within really quickly it, it grew really quickly so i did have to cut some pathways through it but it was amazing what came up through my lawn which i thought was a pretty rubbish lawn actually and i've never really done anything with it apart from you know cut it short every through the summer and never really let anything come out apart from grass it was amazing what came up from clovers to buttercups dandelions the grasses that came up were, were fantastic and within within days of the, the clover and the, all of those plants coming up, we suddenly had bees and butterflies and hoverflies, and it was amazing. Yeah, so I, think... I then decided actually that, you know, no, my, my, oh God, I've just done my ear. I've just scratched my ear. Do <laughs> you think that's going to come no, up? Um, they now know. Yeah, and they now know that I've just scratched my ear. Anyway. Um, so I then decided, having done that for a month and saw the results of that, how quickly wildlife appears in your garden um, to leave it completely. Yeah. No, no, May became no, mo 2022. And here we are in August. It's still going. And it's I'm, still going. I mean, I saw, I have quite a lot of friends who are ecologists and during no mo May, one in particular worked for the Royal Parks in London and he stuck a, a transect, which is like a, square of wood over a patch of grass that had been mowed just before May had started and then every seven days I think counted the number of species within that very small square and it was ridiculous how within 30 days it went from one species of grass and a ladybug to five or six species of wildflower butterflies bees hoverflies and everything so that was one month in a square less than a meter 
by meter. Yeah, and it was also really good during that No Mo May to see local councils actually embracing that as well because during that month we saw lots of grass verges being left to grow wild yeah, and roundabouts and, and roundabouts and the wild flowers that came up on the grass verges were absolutely amazing and of course you know we'll talk about this in other uh, in other podcasts but one of the reasons why our bird population has taken such a dramatic hit is because of the decline in the insect population which is all down to not all down to one of them the factors is down to to cutting grass verges and cutting all the green space right down and so using lots of pesticides and, and weeding and exactly sort of so so I th- I'm hoping because I'm still seeing lots of long verges and lots of um, the edges of motorways are being left as well so I'm hoping that they've seen that that's been really beneficial and yes of course they're cutting areas where it may be dangerous because cars you know are unsighted and at roundabouts and what have you but there are an enormous amount that have been left wild yeah i think it's also because it it's really good to see and it's quite an easy solution for councils because it's very difficult to stop big developments which are obviously devastating for, for biodiversity and it's very tricky not to sort of slow down the progression of building houses and another big asda or yeah. something like that however the benefit of finding these little pockets of grass, whether it's on a roundabout or a verge or people's garden, is quite an easy win for the council. I think of the fuel for, they say. Yeah, and for the, <laughs> for for the wildlife. And even besides the biodiversity that we, sh- we see in our gardens, which is obviously nice for us and nice for the birds and all the ecosystems, there's also the benefits of you know, the more trees and more plants is good for absorbing carbon. Uh, you often, in urban areas, you find in the summer they are particularly hot compared to... A rural area and tree cover and bushes and things like that reduce the sort of ambient temperature yeah. uh, so all these side effects of climate change which are unpleasant not only for us that result in things like hose pipe bands and water issues they actually can be mitigated by just having small wilder areas more trees and more plants for uh, reducing flooding having more yeah. plants and stuff on road verges and stuff stops roads from flooding in the winter and stuff I, like I certainly saw a quite a dramatic increase in the birds coming into the garden during May um, you know I've come into this house four years ago and it took me ages to attract the birds in it's a small garden in a suburban area um, quite enclosed and um, but during no mo May I had so many more ground feeding birds in the grasses and where the grass got long blackbirds coming in um, and that, that you know that wasn't me imagining that that was definitely definitely yeah. a, a, an effect well obviously with longer grass you get more insects and yeah and the ground feeding birds can come and eat them and so that's probably a good sort of hopping point onto talking about actually how you we obviously spoke a bit about not mowing your lawn yeah but i was wondering what else you also did in the garden well i then got a bit obsessed because i'm like that um once i get into something i get a bit obsessed so i then built two big log piles um found some logs and I found a bit of waste material that, in the you woods know, and built two um, quite big log piles in the corners and the, and the dark shady areas of the garden I grow bamboo here and you have to, on an annual basis you cut bamboo canes out I used bamboo canes to make 
bee hotels and yeah um well, so i mean back to the log piles if we start with with that as a as a thing people can do the, so easy to do it's very easy and the the brilliant subheading which again i think i robbed from rewilding britain was embrace the decay yes embrace decay and we should so all embrace decay stop raking up all your all your leaves or or all the sort of debris and have a wood pile and things like that the rotting wood is fantastic for things like beetle larvae and so we're lucky enough in in the south that not so much in this house but in previous houses we've had stag beetles yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they need these sort of wood pile habitats for their larvae to and of course developing. this year for the first time i've had a hedgehog yeah. that nested in all of the, the all of the sort of waste material that have come off the bamboo so under the bamboo and he's made a huge nest out of all the material, all the old leaves of the bamboo. It's called Jose, isn't he? Or called Jose. And he stayed under there for, well, all through the winter. And um, I did feed him a little bit, which he quite liked. Um, he's He's gone now. He's gone through. That's another thing we talked about. Yes. Making yeah. little channels through your fences to, because that's what hedgehogs do. And frogs, of course, as well. And newts. Yes, I um, mean, the hedgehogs often have a territory that can span... I actually can't remember the number, but a huge amount of gardens. For a little creature, you'll be surprised at how far, how far they, they move go. every single night. And so it's really important that they can actually get through the channels. It also stops them from going across roads and things. So if you have a fence, you either dig a hole underneath or cut a little... Yeah, like a like, little cat flap yeah, thing through. For, yeah. for the hedgehogs to come through. And yeah, again, if you, if you have a pond or something like that, frogs need a channel to enter the garden. It's a very, very small change you can make for, for wildlife. Yeah, it's it's easy. just a little channel. And it can be in a place, you know, that's hidden behind plants and what have you. So, Shed or something. Yeah, exactly. So um, so I do, I've done all of those things. And one of the other big things that I've done this year is to completely, virtually completely, stop using any kind of chemicals in the garden. I grow roses, lots of um, flowers that often attract green fly and black fly. And, I, and slugs, of course, as well, were another thing. And I was always using chemicals to try and eradicate yeah, those little things. little blue pellets. For pellets s- for the slugs. I remember as a kid. Um, and, and chemicals to take all the green fly off the roses, and I've stopped doing all of that now. Fertilisers as well. Fertilisers. I now, <laughs> for my sins, I take off the green fly. In fact, I, I now leave a lot of the green fly because I've seen the wasps and the hoverflies are great for taking the green fly off the plants and the ants ants come yeah. up and eat them as well um so i've let nature do a lot of the pesticide work yeah and I, obviously i know from a gardener's point of view lots of people don't want holes in their in their nice plants or their nice roses and stuff but it is obviously a functioning eco ecosystem and so you've got the slugs out there but then the hedgehogs come in and eat the slugs or the no but it's been interesting because because leaving the green fly more green fly on the plants i've definitely seen an increase in the insects coming into the garden and feeding on them and i've watched them i've watched the wasps eating the green fly from the roses and it's been an amazing i guess it's no real different to you know greenhouse workers bringing in animals as a pest control so bringing in ladybirds oh, well, my dad used to do that yeah. if you remember my dad who was a, a commercial grower in huge green commercial greenhouses they would periodically import a certain insect to come in and eat another insect yeah. that were feeding on the crops and they would do that you know almost on a rotational basis um so yes it's yeah, a very if you just similar leave thing. Your garden those those predatory insects will will come in the same way that if you put bird food out birds will come if you leave the insect food out the insects will will find yeah, their i mean way. obviously it's not quite as effective as spraying because you know the insects won't take all of the green fly off your 
roses and off your plants, but it's a small sacrifice. Yeah, to make. it's important to remember. Obviously, it's on a smaller scale in a garden compared to something like a farm. But spraying of pesticides often makes its way back into water systems. Same as if you've got a pond or if you live a near a river issue at the moment. And then it either causes issues down the food chain of the insects ingest the pesticide, which then gets eaten by a fish or something like or a bird. Or it causes a massive algal bloom in your in your water system, and then everything in the in the pond or the river dies because no sunlight gets through. So, a huge problem with our water system is pesticide runoff. And yeah, it's mainly from farms. But if you've got, I know, a hundred gardens all spraying it, then that's also it's got to find its way back into the system somewhere. So going chemical free is probably the hardest of the steps. I think not mowing as much, gathering a bit of wood isn't too bad but if you are an avid gardener used to spraying yeah. that's probably the biggest change yeah nobody really wants to see you know their their plants being eaten decimated alive. and eaten yeah. alive um but, and, but um, think of the money you save from buying not buying rose clear but actually the more you leave nature to take control of that the less damaging effect you see and i genuinely mean that i'm not just saying that i'm i've left it now i've been chemical free for about a year and I'm doing less and less because I'll go through some of the plants and pull the green fly off with my fingers. I'm doing less and less of that now yeah. because more and more the insects are doing that job for me. And that's fantastic. And it does take time and you have to grit your teeth a little bit and and just, you know, ignore, some plants. ignore what you see and just think, right, OK, you know, it's going to it's going to work. And, it, and I have definitely seen that working. And that's also a brilliant thing to see. Nature will sort, sort oh, it out. You know, from Jurassic Park, nature finds a way. <laughs> yeah. um, good old Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. There is, going back to the mowing slightly, because we glossed over the fact that no mow may sort of implies that you just don't mow at all. The survey done by Plant Life, which is a big citizen science survey where the people sort of participating in this sort of no mow event sort of recorded uh, what they found. And they also recorded how frequently they actually either used to or were currently mowing. And interestingly, they found that having two different lengths of lawn was the most beneficial. So you want to have some patches that you let grow relatively long, like don't mow it really at all, because it lets some of the taller flowering plants actually reach the height yeah. they need to flower. But alternative, alternatively, some plants thrive in a smaller, shorter uh, lawn, and so mowing every two to four weeks, you cut some flowers, but they come back very, very quickly. And it means you often end up with a more diverse patch of grass. And so having little areas with longer and little areas with shorter is actually Yeah, better. that definitely does work. And I have now been experimenting with that. And I've done that. In fact, I've got a, two or three different lengths of grass because there are different plants, as you so rightly say, that do better in, within short grass and, and some that do really well in longer grass. So... And also sometimes it's good when the grass has grown long and those flowers have died back, which they obviously will do. You can take the top off. It's a bit like deadheading a, a yeah. plant when it's died down. You can actually you can it, rotate it as well. You can have a patch that you keep shorter for however many months of the year yeah. and then you can rotate it around so yeah. that it adds a bit of variety. I mean, it's been quite tricky over this last month because obviously we've had some very dry weather. Yeah. So everything now is brown and scorched and, and looking a bit tatty. But you just have to let tatty go because you know yeah. tatty's good but a little bit it's also i think reassuring to people to know that they can 
trim areas of their of their garden because people as much as some people love the idea of having almost a rainforest garden lots of people don't want knee length meadow out the back because you want seating areas or yeah and i've cut mine i've cut mine around the edges where i've got flower borders i've cut my grass short around the flower borders so that they don't encroach and and sort of take away the effect of the flower border so i've cut little channels and left little patches and some are in the shade some that's interesting too some are in the shade some are in bright sunshine and you get a really diverse um, mix of plants that come up in those different aspects of, of shade and light so aside from it being great for the for the wildlife it's also a, uh, an interesting yeah exercise well. to see what comes up in those different places it, it also looks it looks nice and you've actually created almost like little rooms like there's a yes. channel that you go into one corner that's bordered by all the bamboo and then you've got a channel that takes you into a little patch that's surrounded by yeah. trees and so it's almost like little separate yeah areas it's, it's fun so. it's been really fun to do so yeah. it's a it's you know give it a go because i would definitely recommend giving it a go and you don't you know as you've so you've said you don't have to let it all go but have a go just leave a little patch to start off with in a corner or a, a part of your garden and just watch what happens because yeah, I, think it's, 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 I think again unless you give it a go and then see what happens you you, you know you don't know so. yeah and I, I think the i can't remember which who who wrote it it was either a guardian or a gardener's world but they had the title of their article was rewilding doesn't mean giving up on gardening i think lots of people i think in the uk especially lots of people love gardening and they think rewilding means they just don't touch their garden and they lose that hobby it's just a slightly different mindset to it you still have to maintain areas of it you still need to oh definitely and you'll still have your flower beds and your you know your areas that you've got specimen plants in and where you've got your trees talking of that plant native insect friendly flower Um, beds try and plant native plants which i've been guilty of not doing in the past because you know we all go to the garden center and see these plants bring them like them bring them back and then realize they're not a native plant but i have now started to grow more native trees i mean unbelievably in my very small garden i've actually planted 11 trees in this garden and not all of them are native plants obviously things like bamboo aren't native to this country but um i've planted a lot that are and um and you should if you can get a really good ratio of more native plants than not and you won't be able to do exclusively and not everyone can can do trees but even the, the flowers themselves nowadays in pretty much every garden centre you go you'll find native insect friendly yeah. plants nectar rich plants are, are one of the a great thing to put in coolest things i think are the wildflower plant plugs and they're like a little they, they do look like a little plug and you essentially just stick them in areas yeah. of your garden or yeah. either in you a, stick them in in the a grass. bed or in the grass yeah. and they just sprouts almost like a little meadow of native yeah friendly for the insects wildflowers and it's a very easy cost-effective way just to stick a few little bombs in the in the garden definitely definitely we've done that we've done that if you remember we did our little area in the front garden as well which fronts out onto a road and we've left a little part of our front lawn to go wild and put some wild plugs flower plugs in that and yeah it's been great yeah and from uh, anybody just i think if you like gardening you probably like nature and besides the environmental benefits you're just more likely to find a a hedgehog thing we've glossed over is if you can put some water in your garden whether it's a proper sunken pond if you haven't got space for a pond a little wetland area just a, an area of turf and plants that's just sort of kept a little bit permanently down yeah i mean we've we've I've got my garden is too small for a pond so we've actually put a a, a barrel 
uh, in our garden, filled it full of water, put a water lily in there and some um, some uh, a couple of old bits of wood so that insects can go in and out. And the hoverflies have laid eggs in it. We've got hoverflies coming out of there. And that happened really quickly as well. We put this barrel, filled it up with water, and within I don't know, a week or two, we'd got insects and um, all sorts buzzing around. Yeah, and people, um, I think... Uh, and that was so easy to do. Yeah, you just bought like, half a whiskey half barrel. Half a whiskey barrel, think? filled it full of water, stuck a few plants in there, um, a little old piece of, uh, of wood um, that was coming out the top so that things could go yeah. in and out. And with these, was easy. with these ones that aren't sunken into the ground, you often don't get, you know, the things that people often want with a pond, being a frog or, or newts, but you do get all the insects. And, and the insect larvae aren't necessarily the most attractive looking things, but they are brilliant for, A, the pollination of your garden once they've become adults, but also just for birds. It's essentially bird food. Yes, and of course those hoverflies have come out and been feeding on my aphid and yeah. the green fly. So um, I think aphid are green fly. And black fly. No, they're different species. Is um, aphid, are aphid and green fly different? Are aphid green fly? No. No. Well, you're um, the entomologist, so you know about that. Yeah, well, if I got that wrong, I'm sure somebody will let me know. <laughs> Someone will definitely correct you if <laughs> that is wrong. Even if you haven't got space for half a whiskey barrel, people do like a like almost like a little washing up bowl, just in the corner somewhere with some water. Birds will drink from it. Hedgehogs will drink from it. It almost acts like if if you don't get frogs and toads permanently living in your garden, it means that if they're hopping around an area, they've got pit stops that they can make, and it's just creating these little pockets yeah of, it doesn't have to be doesn't have to be a big wildlife pond to make an effect yeah. you know just put some water in your garden and um and insects will come yeah and if insects come that's sort of the start for the entire ecosystem then you get all the predators coming in as well yeah it's been um it's been fun as well i've really enjoyed as i said earlier i've really enjoyed watching the changes and the effects that just small those small changes can make it's been uh, it's been fun yeah it's something that i haven't got a garden at the moment living in the flat but i'm about to have a garden and interesting the garden i'm about to have in the in the house i'm moving into doesn't have any grass but it does oh, it's have, got a courtyard garden yeah it's a courtyard it? but along the along the sides of the courtyard it's got these little raised beds and so i'm going to fill those with wildflowers i'm going to put uh, an insect box like a little insect hotel well, uh, you can still put some water in, as we yeah, said. You I'll, can I'll still put, put a, an old raised You pond. can put an old um, whiskey barrel or yeah. something like that in there. We're going to obviously have some a bird table and, and bird feeders to bring the birds in. So even in the little garden that, that I'm going to have, which is a very small paved garden, I'm going to do my best to make it somewhat wild, full of nectar-rich flowers and, and things. And hopefully that will still bring in some some wildlife i need to give you a little bit of insight yeah i'm not i'm not a gardener so i I will be roping you in to to tell me what to put where that'll be fun too Uh, you'll enjoy that yeah it'll be nice to have a little experiment and then you've got all those insects to take photos yeah exactly then i mean you've basically created an rspb reserve in your garden (laughs) in my tiny garden yeah and so we're just looking out on it now actually and there's butterflies flitting about i mean you're talking about doing a boardwalk and a pond that basically is a nature reserve (laughs) i am talking about doing a little boardwalk and a pond even in my small garden but i've got a little idea that um that i'm going to plan out and see if it's if, if it can be done so there we are, rewilding your garden. Rewilding, it's, give it a go. It really recommend really it. It really doesn't matter how much land, even if you just have a small front garden, just plant some wildflowers, just do something. If for, We'll stick some in the show notes, which I'll have to teach my dad what show notes is for a podcast, but we'll stick <laughs> we'll stick some, stick some links to Rewilding Britain. Springwatch website has some really good information. Gardeners World website has some really good information of all the species you can do, all the little changes you can make. So we'll stick some links 
in in that area of the podcast so you can go down and follow them and that way yes i think ispb do something on rewilding yeah. your garden as well to attract um to attract the birds in um because you know as we've said our gardens are a if you looked at all the gardens across the UK, that's a huge, bit, huge amount of green yeah. space, and and you, you'll be surprised at what the percentage of bird population visit those green yeah. spaces that are our gardens, whether they're in cities, towns, or or well, in rural you areas. To, you have to obviously remember some migratory birds go and breed up in Scotland, for example. So on their journey all the way across, yeah. they've got to have these lit areas yeah. that they can stop over, get some fuel, have a sleep. So it's hugely so important. I think, oh, sorry, but to carry this on, the um, Rewilding Britain were talking about, because essentially what they do is buy land and or convince people with land to rewild it. Often you don't see you know, deer rocking up or something like that and, and you're, you're worried it's not working. But if you actually track the, the species that just pass through rather than live there permanently, loads of species do. And it's just like a, a little pit stop for, yeah. as they go through their territory. So if you can make those pockets in cities, birds will love it, hedgehogs will love it, foxes will love it. Although not everyone loves foxes. Oh, I love foxes. Yeah, but they do dig up people's gardens. They do, and if yeah. there's one thing you should never do, it's put an artificial lawn in. And we'll, I'm sure we'll cover that don't, another day. Don't get me... <laughs> No plastic, on no plastic, plastic grass. grass. Would, would Who the hell thought that was a good idea? No, somehow they market it as an eco-friendly thing, and I will rant about that in an episode. <laughs> I'll look forward to that. But um, okay, yeah. So thank you for listening. That is our first ever episode. So please do like, bear with so, us. So yeah, bear with us because you know we know it's probably a bit raw at the Father moment. Father and son rambling about a garden. Yeah, but catch you next time. Yeah, we'll do. <laughs>